what is heaven really like according to the Bible? And is it what we think it is? We discuss this and more with special guest, Dr. J. Richard Middleton on this episode of The Overthinkers. Hello, thinking people's thinking people. Welcome to The Overthinkers, a home for those who love to have fun thinking deeply. I'm your host, Joseph Holmes, filmmaker, film critic, aspiring immortal. And with me, as always, is my eternally enigmatic co-host, Nathan Clarkson, actor, author, filmmaker, and uh, already an immortal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. My soul has been created and it will continue. There you go. There you go. I like that. I like how you put that. And with me today, with us today, is a very special guest. He is professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. He holds a bachelor's in theology from Jamaican Theological Seminary, an an MA in philosophy from the University of Gulf, Canada, and has a PhD in theology from Free University in Amsterdam, a joint degree program with the Institute for Christian Studies, Toronto. He is the author of multiple books, including The Liberating Image, A New Heaven and New Earth, and Abraham's Silence. He is the jovial, the just, the judicious, Dr. J. Richard Middleton. Dr. Middleton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. It's great to have you. We've heard a lot of great things about you. You were highly recommended by another guest we've had on the show, Dr. Drew Johnson. So uh, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a real treat to, to have you here. And what a fun topic, talking about the afterlife. Yes, what happens when we die. But first, hold on, my phone is done. There we go. But first... Nathan, if people want to enjoy our discussion, want to engage more with topics like this or engage with fellow overthinkers, where can they go? They can go to theoverthinkersjournal.com where they can find out more about their hosts and send us all of their love and hate mail and any ideas they have for future episodes. They can also go to our online group that has about 8,000 members now. All of us overthinking is on Facebook and posting memes and articles and getting into great discussions. And we want you there. So search our Overthinkers private group on Facebook. And if you do enjoy the show, please leave us a review and share with a friend. It really does help us so much. Cool. All right. So pretty much everyone believes that they know what Christians have historically taught about what happens when we die. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you die, you go to heaven and be with God, where you will live forever in perfect happiness. But for some reason, biblical scholars have pushed back on the notion that this is what the early Christians believed. Scholars like Entry Wright and today's guest, Dr. Richard Milton, have argued that the Bible and early Christians hope in the afterlife focused more on the resurrection of the dead here on earth in a restored creation. But other Christian thinkers like Dr. J. S. Feinberg pushed back on this view, arguing for a more traditional view of Christian hope in heaven. So Dr. Milton, describe for us what your view is of the Christian hope for the afterlife after death, and what inspired you in your reading of scripture and history to take this view that often runs counter to popular, um, popular traditional views? Okay, I'm going to start in reverse order. Let me start with my own story, how I led to that. So uh, I was a person attending an undergraduate seminary doing a bachelor of theology degree. And the only person in my class who was not going into church ministry. Now, I was an artist in high school, and I was very interested in this world and the arts and, and beauty and so forth. And I wasn't really sure why I was doing this degree, except I really loved the Bible. And as I came to understand the Bible more and more and to love it and wanted to become a teacher of scripture, I got this sense, it was in the air, that if you're not going into some kind of church-oriented ministry, you're a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to understand a theology that would ground my life in this world and make it meaningful, not just for pastors, but for ordinary people like myself. Mm-hmm. This led me, the first thing, to study the Christian hope. What are we hoping for? Because what we hope for affects how we live now. Mm. Not what your form of doctrine is, but what you actually hope for, what you really believe in your heart of hearts about the future will determine the, the steps you take in your life. And I began looking at eschatology, and I had a kind of a confused, muddled version of the end. I believed in the resurrection of the dead, a central aspect of Christian faith. It's in the mm. creeds, and everybody emphasizes that Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. However, we also talk about going to heaven. But heaven was conceived as this immaterial, airy-fairy kind of place where you float around on clouds. I didn't believe, most Christians didn't really believe you actually on a cloud playing a harp. 
but it was kind of this otherworldly thing. But how could you have a body in a non-physical place was the first problem. And then they also said, the Bible says there's a new heaven, a new earth. In that case, the word heaven means the universe out there besides the earth. So there's a new cosmos, a new universe. How do these ideas fit together? And I started studying that. And I came to the conclusion, and I wasn't the only one. I found other scholars who had come to it. I was an undergraduate, 20 years old at the time. <laughs> and I won't say how many years ago that was. <laughs> I came to the clear conclusion the Bible never ever says that the final destiny for the righteous, or for the Christian, is, is heaven hereafter. Mm. It always speaks about God and heaven and Christ and the new Jerusalem coming to earth and wow. there being a new, new world here, a renewed world, parallel to when you become a Christian. You know, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has passed away. Everything's become new. But that doesn't mean that I've been obliterated and some ghost now inhabits me. It means I'm renewed. I become a new person. But I'm still a human being. Likewise, the new creation is this world, cleansed of sin, renewed of sin, renewed mm -hmm. from sin into eternal life. And so I came to understand that the direction of salvation is not in the Bible, in either Old or New Testament, ever from earth to heaven. It is always from heaven to earth. Interesting. God comes to be with Israel in the tabernacle and the temple, dwell with them. God comes to be incarnate in the man Jesus. He ascends to heaven. He will return again and make all things new. That's my core understanding of the, the future, the afterlife, a renewal of creation. And that then empowers me to live towards that future, to live as if God really so loves this world that he gave his only son. So I got to love this world too. Not the things of the world. You know, there's the world can be used in a negative sense. Don't love things mm -hmm. of the world, but love the world, care for it as God does to yeah. bring about healing and redemption to the, to the extent I can do, which is quite minor, as I build for the coming of the kingdom of God, which will make all things new. This is, this is great. I, I think I'm wondering if some of our listeners right now, their minds are being blown because yeah. a lot of us grow up in church and we hear this concept of heaven, that when you die, you leave the old earth behind and you go and you live in heaven. And we even have these, you know, we see this in cartoons, we see this in popular culture. We are on clouds and we are strumming harps. And, you know, I've, I've even heard people talk about, oh, I can't wait to get rid of this body uh, when I leave this world behind. And, you know, this is kind of just in the cultural um, uh, vernacular that we use when talking about the afterlife very often as Christians. And it still is. And, and, and I'm talking, this isn't, you know, just in, in sex. This is what I have found is broadly accepted within Christian culture that, oh, we leave the world behind. God messed up. So he's kind of he's kind of starting from scratch, getting rid of this universe. And we go up and we are kind of disembodied souls that just kind of sing worship songs. Mm -hmm, all. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting to me during the pandemic. I, I kind of thought about this, this concept. And, and it, what, what, what struck me is that really the thing we get and I hate to say this, of course, we get uh, community and relationship with our creator, all of this. But really what we get, if, if the selling point for uh, Christianity is eternal life, right? You get to go to heaven if you're a Christian. That's kind of really the selling point, especially from an, uh, a secular point of view. And so that being the case, that being kind of the whole main deal, I was surprised to see how little people know about this subject. And so I kind of started taking a, not a, a little bit of a deep dive during the pandemic. I had a lot of time in my hands to read and, and listen and watch. And I was surprised to find that a lot of these, these notions that we have about the afterlife are almost entirely formed from extra biblical uh, places. Very often, and, and I kid you not, places like cartoons. That is where some of our modern theology is coming from. Mm -hmm. Visuals we find in Bugs Bunny. And don't think it hasn't been a little slice of heaven. Because it hasn't. And, uh, and, you know, even the kind of things we all become like angels and we get wings and you, you find this in, in all sorts of different places across culture, but it's become a theological accepted understanding of the afterlife. And I think as I learned more about what scripture has to say about the afterlife, I found it to be so much more beautiful, mm -hmm. so much bigger, so much grander. And we'll get into a few of those things, but I want to just reiterate a few of the things you said is that, that, God isn't starting over. 
He's not starting from scratch. He's redeeming what he's created, this earth, and that we actually get to take part in the redemption beginning right now of this earth. It will be complete someday. Um, but that, that was that's a novel. It seems like a thing we should all know, but that, that was a novel um, realization for many people that I was reading when they came to these, these things. And so it, as you said, what our hope in changes how we live and exist here. And one of the critiques I've heard from atheists towards Christians about uh, Christians in general, just the mass of Christians, is when you're a Christian, you're basically leaving this earth. And so it gives you license to not really care about it, to, um, to yeah, well, I'm going to die someday, so it doesn't really matter. But with this whole new concept of, no, God is remaking earth, and he's the resurrection of the dead, all of a sudden we go, oh, our hope we are living in the place that God wants to redeem and we can take part in that work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's a beautiful thing, but I think this might be a little mind blowing for a lot of people out there. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll add briefly to that. I, you know, I, I have a similar story in the sense that I, you know, grew up, you know, hearing like the hope is, you know, you're going to go to heaven when you die and finding that that didn't jive with what gave me the most joy, which was, you know, remaking this earth, creating art, creating, you know, uh, culture, like building something here, you know, you know, and now I call that sort of kingdom making, you know, but it's like, that was, that's what gave me the most joy. And what the hope of like, oh, all the work that I'm putting into this earth is not really going to amount to anything. Yes. You know, was, was, I found myself feeling very schizophrenic. It was like, I had the part of my theology and the part that I actually was living out and wanted to live okay. out for God's glory was, and that was always difficult. So when I heard, it's actually, it's kind of funny. I mean, what was it? I've, oh, I'm forgetting his name now. That's uh, Mark Twain has this famous quote, which is that he's always amused by the fact that people describe, Christians describe heaven as a place, the stuff they're going to do in heaven is the stuff that they avoid doing on earth. It's like they, the stuff that they don't like sitting in church and seeing they try to avoid that all the time. And yet that's how they describe they're going to live eternity. <laughs> when, when I, I sort of got, I got, you know, went to the King's college in New York city and, and I all got exposed to a lot more theology of the kind that you're talking about. I was like, Oh, I'm now able to integrate the things that actually give me joy and meaning in life with what actually Christianity promises. And the bonuses, it actually seems like it reflects closer to, actual original biblical theology yeah yeah well and i have you know, a, I have a question i'd love to um pose to you and 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 this is something that i think catches a lot of people because this is the how we use it in our when we talk about this you talked briefly about how we talk in our uh, christian circles about when i die i go to heaven but what is the definition scripturally of heaven and is it the same as the remade earth and why do we consider it? Why do we conceptualize it as being up in the clouds and why do we conceptualize it away from this universe as into right, a right. place? Some of those questions, I think our listeners would love to hear some of, some of insight into that. So before I wrote the book on eschatology, a new heaven and new earth, I wrote an article with the same title, but I think it had a question mark at the end, I'm not sure. Um, and in the article, and, and I quote this in the book too, I say, I repented of using the word heaven to describe the Christian hope. Mm-hmm. Because it is never, ever used in the Bible for the Christian hope. Wow. Never. I, I, so from us 20 years old, okay, when the Bible study in my church, let it out of Bible study, said, okay, we're going to study the future, eschatology, and I have a, a wager to make. I want you to search the Bible. In those days, People who went to church knew the Bible better than they do today, much better. Salutary, I've yeah. seen a significant shift in Bible literacy. And said, I want you to come back next week and bring a passage that shows that we will live in heaven forever if we are the saved. And I will give you $20. Mm. People brought back passages. We looked at each one. No, it doesn't say that. No, it doesn't say that. And I've been doing this as a campus minister and a teacher for years as a way to just get people's interest. And these days when I start a course and I say that the, teacher, the students say, hey, we know there's no such passage. Don't even bother look. Don't waste your time. <laughs> <laughs> the, the oral tradition on the campus has been, he's going to keep his money. So don't even bother trying. <laughs> there are no such passages. Wow. You have to read the text through a lens that assumes it's saying that, but it doesn't ever say that in none of the texts. So what's fascinating to me now is 
I've been teaching this stuff since I was 20 years old, mm-hmm. right through campus ministry, into academia, undergraduate seminaries, in churches, and so on. When I teach this material now, I don't simply assume it will shock people because mm-hmm. half of my class says, that's amazing. I've never heard that. That changes everything. The other half says, yeah, we've been teaching that in our church for, since I was a kid. <laughs> so it spread in a way that it hadn't when I was young. When I was young, it was very rare. Biblical scholars were saying it, but it hadn't got down mm-hmm. and filtered down to the pew yet or to, to the pastorate. But it's being taught in seminaries now. Um, so, you know, because we have biblically informed teaching in a way we, did, we didn't used to have um, in churches, not in every church. So you have a split in my students. Yeah. So now my question is, um, so again, because this is, you know, I, uh, what, what has been the pushback that you've gotten from this? The people who disagree with you on the you know, biblical interpretation of sort of saying it's about restoring this creation rather than going to heaven. What has been some of the, I think, the pushback you've gotten? What maybe has been some of the strongest arguments you've gotten pushback? And, and I guess what would your sort of response to those be? Yeah. You know, in the beginning, I got pushed back because people were just amazed. This can't be right. You've got to be crazy, I, I, you know. But the, these days, I don't get that anymore. These days, by, you know, I teach a course on biblical worldview. It, it's, it's called Being in the Story. This is it's the name of my seminary gives the course. It's kind of a cross-cultural, multidisciplinary course on Bible, theology, philosophy, contemporary culture, history, Western civilization, a lot of stuff. With the, with the whole question of how do we live in this world, that's mm-hmm. God's world. And by, you know, I start with creation theology, as I said, beginning with creation, humans as image of God. By the time I get to the eschatology stuff, they say, oh, that makes perfect sense now. Mm-hmm. This is a coherent story you're telling. So nobody's really shocked anymore. If I was to present it in a church and a retreat or something, I get a few people who are like, really? But they kind of say, that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't really get pushback. Um, the, the pushback I get, is in two places, and they're very minor. They're not really about the, the, the whole vision. I get people who want to focus on what we call the intermediate state between hmm. death and resurrection. Well, then we go to heaven, right? And we're with God, and and they will emphasize that because they are anthropological dualists. They believe there is a part of you that's an immortal spiritual part that when you die has to go somewhere. And yeah, you get your body back at the end and maybe you'll be on earth, but somewhere you got, so they push back on that. And I don't try to argue too much about that. I don't believe in that, but you know, whatever. And and then you have those who would say, um, good people that I really respect in other ways who say, well, in the new creation, it's going to be on earth, yes, but it's really going to be such a different place that it's almost like a total discontinuity with everything we have here. Mm -hmm. And all that we will do there is worship God, sing those hymns. Um, But it's on earth. Yeah, it's on earth. It's a a new heaven and a new earth, but it's discontinuous with anything we know now. So I get pushback from that, and I try to show that that's not really clear in the Bible. There is discontinuity in one primary way. There'll be no sin or evil in the new world. That would be amazing. That'll blow my mind. What would it be like to live in a world where I can engage in ordinary human activities with no systemic corruption, with no corruption of the heart? What would that be like? I, I, it's beyond human imagination. No, I have seen no, no, no heart has ever imagined that. But we've been revealed some of it by the Holy Spirit, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. So I get pushback in those kind of ways, but it's not a lot of pushback these days. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. So, so let me see if I can understand a little bit and try to um, articulate kind of these big concepts to our listeners. So basically, I think what we're saying is, and what you're getting at, is essentially for a long time we've thought we're going to be this disembodied that heaven is a place we go we're going to be disembodied up to the sky somewhere with with god we're going to sing hymns even with even though we don't have bodies somehow uh and if we do they're going to be totally different bodies in a different place and the universe will be gone but what you're saying is in scripture we actually find what the evidence really talks about um is that God is remaking earth, that God is remaking us, and that the new world, the quote, what we conceptualize as quote, heaven, is actually the remade universe with us, except God will be at the center and there will be no sin. But we still will get to experience all the things, and I I don't want to drift into a heresy, but you can (laughs) correct me if I do, but all the things that we love about this earth, the beauty, the art, the music, um, our, even our bodies 
are going to be in the resurrection, that all the beautiful, that God didn't mess up when he first made this world. He's coming to redeem his original creation, uh, essentially take us back to the the understanding of the garden. It's going to be beautiful and perfect and safe and life-giving again. But all those things that we love, nature and goodness and relationship and music, those things will be present. And they're actually going to be present right here. On the earth, we are sitting and talking to to each other currently, God is redeeming this earth, and that is what the quote afterlife is. Am I capturing that? I think I think that's that's just right. That's just right. Um, and so to think of it, the, the relation between the Garden of Eden and the, the New Jerusalem is very interesting because the New Jerusalem is this city that is prepared, comes out of heaven from God. It is also the bride of Christ. It is the people, mm. but it's an urban image. And if you go mm-hmm. through the Old Testament, it's very clear God wants to redeem the city, Jerusalem. Cities are corrupt places. Of course they are. And Babel is the, you know, Babylon is, is the epitome of that. Come out of her, my people. But God doesn't want you to live in nature. Like we're in loincloths. God wants an urban environment that's redeemed. That's that interesting mm-hmm. metaphor. But in that urban environment, you have the tree of life from Genesis chapter two. Wow. Interestingly, the tree of life singular in, Gen- in Revelation is on both sides of the river. How does that work? That just shows you can't be literalistic about the imagery, right? Yeah. And, the, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's like the, the, the tree of life giving life, right? Um, there is also a river of life in Ezekiel's vision of the New Jerusalem, which flows from the throne of God. And you've got the same thing in um, the book of Revelation, this river flowing through the, the center of the city. So you have this interesting image that draws on Eden, but takes it further. We're told that, that um, Eden, the land around um, the garden, was full of precious stones, like had gold in it, veins of gold, that onyx stone and other things like mm. Onyx and gold are found in the walls and gates of the New Jerusalem. Wow. Mm. But they're worked in. They're no longer in their natural state. They're now artifice. So there is the idea that, that, that you know, human construction and technology will be redeemed in some kind wow. of way. Now, it's imagery. And of course, the New Jerusalem is in the shape of a cube, right? And if you ever read Robert Heinlein's very ironic novel called Job, about this guy who switches between timelines and ends up in a New Jerusalem, and it's literally as high as it is wide as it is long, and it's kind of weird. And St. Peter greets him at the gate and puts him on a bus, and he takes you know days to cross it because it's 1,500 miles in every direction. Yeah. But the metaphor of it, the cube is that's the Holy of Holies of the temple. Wow. It's the only other cube in the Bible. And this is the center of the presence of God in the new creation. It's going to manifest through what the people of God do. They are the bride of Christ. They are the new Jerusalem. God doesn't save individuals. God doesn't even just save communities of people who hold hands on a fire and sing Kumbaya. He, he redeems people in their urban environment. And we live. That should, that should empower us yes. to yeah. seek the healing of the city. You know? So this is this is amazing. Okay, I've got a I've got a like a, a, a lightning round sort of a, of three questions you okay. can take at your at your pace, but I'm just thinking that our listeners would really be interested in. Um, heading back a little bit, where why where did we get the idea then about how did this if this was the original thing that Christians were believing that we're about restoring creation here on earth, being resurrected, restoring this creation, and is evident in scripture, and, it, and that's that's what the scriptural yeah that's what scriptures said and that's what the early christians believed where how did we get off on this you know tangent of believing that we were about supposed to be escaping earth and how did that have right. such prevalency for so long um yeah. secondly is you know what are what are some other pictures that the actual bible does have if people want to have an image of heaven you talked about the new jerusalem what are some other ones that you would like to share with us that people inspire and third, will there be sex in the new creation? Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's what everyone wants to know. So remember, we are male listeners. So, yeah, yeah. Well, let's start with the first question. So that, that's, how did we lose this vision of yeah. the renewal of the earth? And okay. So let me just clarify something about the word heaven. Um, I go out on a limb. I'm an Old Testament scholar, so I'm, I'm clear about Old Testament. I think this is also true of New Testament, though, which the, the, the New Testament uses the old, right? It, it basically just extrapolates yeah. from it. Heaven in the Bible, is never an immaterial, uncreated realm. Wow. Mm. It is always the universe apart from earth. In the mm. beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you say Psalm 148, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him, you angels, 
Praise him, sun, moon, and stars. Praise him, wind. Praise him, meteorological phenomena. That is what's up in the sky above earth. Mm -hmm. Then praise him from the earth, including the waters, the deeps, the sea monsters, the, the creatures on the earth, the trees, people too. So the whole earth is, and, and heaven is a worship service. And then you have in um, Isaiah 66, the Lord says, why are you rebuilding the temple after, after it's broken down in the Babylonian exile? I don't need a house. I've made my own house. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. So heaven is the throne of God, earth is a footstool in the cosmic temple of creation. So what does it mean that God's throne is in the sky? That's using the term heaven now in a metaphorical way. Mm. Because heaven is a realm that we don't have access to. I mean, even with all our technology, I mean, I love the movie Apollo 13, but look how many people it took to get them down safely from heaven. Because yeah. it's not mm. our natural realm. Look what they need to mimic a fraction of our power. You know, uh, yeah. Terra firma is where we belong. So that becomes a symbol for whatever is transcendent. So where are angels? They're in heaven. Right? Mm. Um, uh, you rule, you know, Augustus Caesar claimed he ruled the Roman Empire from heaven. Mm. It's a common, common claim of emperors in the ancient world that they're seated in heaven at the side of the gods ruling the world. So the gods rule from heaven. Well, Yahweh is in heaven. That's his throne. What's really interesting is when you get to Revelation 21 and 22, the throne of God is now on earth for the first time because wow. earth now is cleansed of evil. So God wanted his throne to come from heaven to earth. He rules from heaven. You call upon the Lord. The Lord comes down. Okay, was God vertically up there literally coming down? You know, when he says Jesus ascended into heaven, what does that mean? Did he go towards Jupiter or Alpha Centauri? Where did he go? How far did he go? Mm -hmm. And light years, you know, when you think of modern cosmology, you're going to get confused. You have to think about ancient cosmology. Uh -huh. ancient cosmology the earth is flat heaven is a dome overhead that keeps back the, the waters above the heavens to give us airspace for breathing there are waters under the earth and the pillars of the earth are the mountains at the extremes that hold up the dome and go down and keep the earth firmly grounded that's cosmology the bible is assuming that cosmology it's not teaching it wow. it's using that cosmology to teach the world is meant to be god's temple because that's the structure of a temple and God wants to dwell with us in the world. Now, between the Testaments in, in, the, in the Jewish intertestamental period, you have this transition in the view of heaven. And there's a really great book called The Early View of Heaven. A lot of books on the history of heaven, and most of them read modern ideas back into ancient texts. This one is the best book, The Early View of Heaven. It goes back to Egyptian and Mesopotamian views of, of heaven through the, the Bible and into the early modern period, the early Christian period. And here's the thing. We know that the Greeks from the pre-Socratic philosophers and Plato believed the earth was a sphere. Hmm. And you had around the earth seven concentric crystalline spheres in which were embedded the moon, Mercury, Mars, you know, the sun, Venus, right. all the planets. There's seven, seven of them, six planets, plus five planets, plus the moon, plus the sun. And as they turned, you got the music of the spheres. In the intertestamental period, you mix those two metaphors. So the earth is flat but it has multiple heavens above it. Hmm. And so in the apocalypse, like first Enoch and so on, the person ascends through the various levels of heaven to the throne of God. That's a mixed view of heaven. It's all physical. Hmm. Now, Plato, of course, believed that the soul was immortal, was, was a immaterial substance and would live forever. Maybe not as an individual. It would go back to the world soul. Sure. He never had the view of heaven, never used the word heaven for anything material. But Christians started using Greek philosophy to explain to their pagan neighbors what the Christian faith was. Before Christians, the, 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 the Jew Philo did that. He used Platonic ideas. So he said, sure. what we call the resurrection, that you really call the immortality of the soul. It's the same thing. Yeah, I don't think it's the same thing at all. And Christians mm -hmm. started to use the Platonic ideas. But even church fathers in the first, second, and third centuries, if they did speak of going to heaven, you know what they said? You ascend from the earth past the lowest heaven, through the various heavens, up to the realm of God's mm. throne. That's what they're actually saying. Oh, interesting. The only one who viewed heaven where you ascend to as an immaterial realm was Origen, who was the true Platonist among the church fathers in the second century. Okay. But the notion that heaven is an immaterial realm is not common until the late Middle Ages, early modern period. Wow, really? It's actually quite late. But it, it's a logical conclusion from two things. The first is 
Christians begin adopting Platonism and especially what we call Neoplatonism, the philosopher Plotinus in the third century AD, um, who had a version of Platonism that Christians like. Augustine used Neoplatonism to help fight back against the Manichaean heresy. And he so he, he spiritualized everything. The spiritualization where the, the, what is above is better mm. and you must ascend to God um, is the first impulse. But they still thought you were going up to some realm where God was beyond these heavens, these literal heavens, until people start to think about the fact that the universe actually is not flat, it is spherical, and you can use telescopes to look beyond the earth. Sure. Okay, God can't be there now. Where is God? Ah, oh, then they grasp the Platonic notion of an immaterial realm and combine that with the idea of heaven. And then heaven becomes immaterial. Ah. And it becomes dominant towards the end of the Middle Ages when resurrection is dying out. And also in the early modern period when we needed to have God somewhere else than the physical cosmos. But it was never a problem in the Bible because it was simply a symbolic term to say God is in heaven or to say heaven thundered. You know, gotcha. it's a metaphor to say God is transcendent. So he rules from heaven. But you can't even think of that literally in our cosmology. Yeah. So to say God rules from heaven in a modern expanding universe cosmology simply means that God is beyond us. Right. But here's the one thing I would take that's called literal, not literalistic. The word literalistic I use to mean that you think there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between things the Bible says and things in the external world. Right. Like if a video camera would record it that way. Literal means ad literum. That's what the reformers and the early church fathers meant by according to the letter. That is, what did the writer intend? Yeah. You could say, what is the genre expectation? So a, a literal reading of God being in heaven, you, you don't have to say God is you know, up there you know, in Jupiter somewhere. What you say is God fills the universe everywhere except Earth, hmm. which C.S. Lewis called the silent planet. Right. Because it was cut off from commerce with the heavens. He understood this very, very well. But God wants to be present on Earth in the full way that he's present in the rest of the universe. Mm. And he's promised that one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's a promise. One day to use Paul's language, God will be all in all. Or, or Ephesians 4, Christ ascended that he might fill all things. This is all temple language. Mm. Just as the glory of God came and filled the tabernacle of the temple, God wants to also fill creation. Mm. Not going to happen until the eschaton, though. Because that. sin has impeded it. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the first. That's the first question. The first question answer, yes. right? <laughs> what's the second question again? Well, I guess it, we'll say is that. Um, well, I guess the big thing is, in the new creation, will there be sex? Oh, yeah, that's your um, third question, right? You want yeah, to first, jump to that? Second, right? yes. Well, it was, well, but the larger is what are some pictures of the uh, that of of the new creation that. Right. Um, pe that people may not think about, but that that if people do want a picture of it, what does the Bible actually tell us about it? Yeah. So, you know, the, in terms of the New Testament pictures, there aren't a lot. It's hmm. just touched on here and there. And the, the theologian G.C. Burkhauer made this point, which I found very important, that there's so much figurative language about the eschaton, that hmm. if you took it all literally, you get contradictions. Right. But if you understand what's the point of the imagery, you can understand the point is that God wants to renew the world. Hmm. God, God didn't create junk, and God doesn't junk what He makes. Basically, that's the basic point, right? Well, God's maybe some of the of the pictures of what the next world will be like are currently here, and and I, I don't want to be again heretical, but I, I my my I'm from Colorado, and I live in the mountains there. And there's to me, I've been all around the world, and there's just nothing more beautiful than being in the Rocky Mountains, right, right. watching the stars come across the sky, and for a second, you know, the Irish. They have this um, this term called thin places. Yes, yes. Where something is so beautiful, you're closer to God's presence, and God's presence mm -hmm. feels more mm. um, visceral. And to me, and correct me if I'm being a heretic right now, but to me, it's almost like if you want a vision of heaven, look at the most beautiful things that we have right now, because those are small glimpses of the remade world. Is that right. is that close? So, so let me say two, two things in response to that. First, about mountains in the Old Testament. You know, Mount Sinai is where they meet God. 
and there's actually in chapter 24 they, they see God seated on a throne upon something blue mm. there's a sky because God the mountains well. touch heaven so they're thin places so I grew up in in Jamaica in Kingston Jamaica but I used to go hiking in the blue mountains in Jamaica it's only oh, wow. seven and a half thousand feet and one day we're up there were you know it's, it's the only cold place in Jamaica in, in January it'll get down to about freezing overnight so we're all wrapped up we don't have any winter clothes, we don't have blankets, you know, we're shivering through the night. Dawn comes. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. My friend, who became the best man at my wedding, said, it's such a shame. This is so beautiful. It's such a shame that all this will be destroyed one day when Christ returns. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought to myself at that point, I was 21. So I've been working on this just a year. I thought, I don't think it's going to happen. I think this is exactly what the new creation is going to be like. Amen. Uh, so, so I have a, a sympathy with mountains, too. And the other That's thing I want to say, though, is to really ahead, understand yeah. the concreteness now, of imagery, go to the Old Testament. Hmm. Now, there is a pattern, and I've traced it in one of the chapters of my book on eschatology. It's the pattern of salvation in the Old Testament. I call it the Exodus pattern. And I, I list nine aspects of the pattern, but let's not start with all of them. But when some of them are when Israel returns home from Babylonian exile, there will be flourishing of nature. They'll, mm. things will flower and bloom and the, 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 the mountains will rejoice, all this kind of language. Then you have that the nations will be at peace. There'll be social harmony. All those who are weak and sick and lame and blind will be healed. There's going to be healing of the person. There will be righteous leadership. Mm -hmm. This is the origin of the messianic hope. There'll be righteous leadership again. Shepherds will restore Israel properly. It's still waiting for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're still waiting for that one. The, the wild animals will be at peace with you. It doesn't say the wild animals will no longer hunt. They wow. won't hunt your livestock. They mm. won't kill your children. There'll be peace. Uh, so that, this is a vision of what it would be like when Israel returns from exile. In Isaiah 65, it says, when you return from exile, people will not invade you and take away your houses or destroy your vineyards anymore. Mm, you will plant and reap the fruit of what you have. Your children will live yes. to a long, ripe old age. Anybody dies for 100, you'll say, boy, that guy's young. You know, children yeah. won't die in the womb anymore. There'll be fullness of life. No, this is not resurrection. This is about post-exilic restoration. It's called a new heaven and a new earth. In Isaiah 61, 65, oh. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. When you get to New Testament, you have taken these Old Testament visions of the restoration of national Israel in their land, and it's become universalized and cosmicized, if you will, wow. by second type of Jewish wow. eschatology. That this is what it's, this is a metaphor for the renewal of the whole creation. All we will be universe. resurrected. The Messiah will be there ruling, and there will be the messianic banquet, and everyone will, will you know, the evil will be punished, of course, but things will be restored. The nations will stream to Zion to learn. A war no more, all this kind of stuff. All of these are images of the eschaton. But you got to think, they'll not be exactly the way they are today. We can't really imagine how they will be. Of course. So yeah, at right. least the, the question of sex, right? Will there be sex in your creation? I, I said, a difficult question to answer is like people ask me, the most common question I got after writing my book on eschatology was emails Will there be resurrection of animals in your creation? Well, of course, yeah. So, I, so, I, so my, my answer is, um, I think so, but you know, are you thinking of every single animal that ever existed, or the ones in, you the, love, yeah. in the history of the world in deep right. time, all species? Does that include bacteria? Does that include corals? You know, mm -hmm. um, every kind of dinosaur. What are you thinking of? Like, eye has not seen, ear has not heard. You can't really imagine new creation. You have glimpses, mm -hmm. but the glimpses are not to fulfill our interest in the details. The glimpses are to motivate us to live towards the vision. Mm. I love that. That's this great. Is, this is great. And this is a good place to wrap up. But real quick, I just want to say what I love about this. And Joseph, you touched on it earlier is this view of heaven, quote, this, this understanding of the afterlife. It all of a sudden makes everything I do now infinitely more yes. meaningful. Yes. And because I'm an artist, I make movies, I write books, I make music, I write poetry. I love creation. And, and, and you said, Joseph, there was this kind of depression I experienced as a kid realizing, oh, well, it's all going to be burned up and it won't matter anymore. And I have to go to another place. Why do I even try? But now when I create something, 
I can do so in a way that actually has eternal ramifications. And that's yeah. doing so in relation to God and the new kingdom. And I think that's so beautiful that God is redeeming everything and we can be part of that. So I'm so glad that you came on today. This is such an, an eye-opening and mind-opening. And like you said, um, a, a, a life-changing <laughs> understanding. When, yeah. when you understand uh, how you uh, uh, conceptualize heaven and the afterlife will change everything about now. And so I love that. Thank you so much for coming on today. And we're going to now move into a segment called Blesses or Curses, in which we are uh, each going to bless something that we recommend, a resource, a movie, a song, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then curse, quote, something we recommend you stay away from that, that maybe doesn't capture um, very well the subject we're talking about today. So uh, we always offer what our guests like to go first or last. I'll go last. Okay, cool. Sounds right. good. You want to go first? Sure. Yeah, okay. Um, so I'm going to do uh bless, like my bless is going to be The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Beautiful. You brought uh up C.S. Lewis earlier. And while it's not um a you know a, a literal picture of, of the afterlife or heaven or hell, even it is doing sort of what the you know the Bible and such is trying to do, which is create imagery to help us understand. Uh, who we are now and it's, it's just a beautiful picture of there's a bus that from people in hell where they're miserable that can take them to heaven and um and the things that they would have to give up in themselves in order to get there that they don't want to mm. and that's me it was i you know i i experienced like this is what i have to do right now it's like in order to actually have a flourishing life where i'm a part of god's redemption of creation i have to give some stuff up that i don't want to give up, but that's the only way that I actually become a better person, have a more flourishing life. So I think there aren't a lot of movies or books that I think really capture the spirit of, of the afterlife. And that one for me was always the closest one uh, that resonated with me, aside from one that I think that you're probably going to do, but, um, <laughs> by the same author, by the same author. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, then curse, I'm going to curse, um, you know, uh, City of Angels, which is a movie starring Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. That's it really, in a sense, it's trying to be a beautiful, touching, but also like dark and gritty story about, you know, what it means to live in life and what it means to go to heaven or hell. Basically, it's like in order to have real life, you need to give up the transcendent of heaven. Um, but the price is death, ultimately death. And which is really the inverse of what you know, the Bible teaches, which is actually the unification of the transcendent with the, with uh, now, but it also was just a really bad movie. So like, it's an easy, it's an easy curse. Um, so those, that, those I think would be my blessings and curses. Uh, Nathan? I will, I'm going to bless um, in line with C.S. Lewis and his pontifications on the afterlife. There is, you know, it's hard describing what it will look like. You say no, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. But I always loved C.S. Lewis and his wrestling and, and trying to discover what it might look like. And in his last book of the series, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, in the Last Battles, called um, "There's a Picture of Heaven," and it's probably an imperfect, incomplete one. But it was something that, as a kid, really inspired me to go, "Oh, maybe the afterlife is beautiful, not just sitting on clouds singing worship songs and hymns that, Same. Are, that are super boring." And it was this picture of all the characters characters running and they're running through beautiful open fields towards something in the distance that's beautiful and they keep on uh saying this phrase which is further up and farther in which is meant to get at there's an eternity of better and there's more energy the more they run there's eternity of goodness and beauty ahead and it's not stagnant it's not boring it's active and lively and forever unfolding and i just thought that was such a beautiful i don't want to give any spoilers if you haven't read the series but a beautiful way to end uh one to, to in the, the the series of books and also to give this picture of what the afterlife made by a beautiful wonderful artistic uh, loving god might look like at least capture some of that and then on a more practical level i'm going to uh bless a, a small book especially for our non-academics out there who just want to kind of gently start diving into the subject but need something maybe a little that speaks maybe more in plain language uh, there's a book called it's just called heaven by j oswald sanders and what i appreciate about this book is one it spoke to people like me who are not academics who are trying to understand this concept of heaven and, and wrestle with it. And so he's a an, an, uh, very intelligent person who speaks 
to in a way that I can understand. I really appreciate that. And it's it's also written with a question mark. Uh, he doesn't tell you what's going to happen. And that's what I think is a lot of the problem. Hmm. He says these are things that could be. These are things that maybe the verses are getting at. So I think it's a great place. for It's a short book just to kind of dip your toes into the subject of the afterlife. It's called Heaven by J. Oswald Sanders. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to curse a Christian movie called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And I'm going to curse kind of the whole ilk of this um, of this genre of uh, that the quote heaven, I went to heaven genre, because I think it's kind of sensationalized heaven. And it's also probably to blame for a lot of our conceptions of the afterlife. And I think is where we get a lot of the misconceptions and wrong conceptions. And 90 Minutes in Heaven was an interesting story that was a movie that was based off of a, um, a a man's account of having died for 90 minutes and gone to heaven and seen all these incredible things and came back and gave his uh, his vision and they made a movie and wrote a best-selling book. Turns out... Um, uh, oh, I was saying, it might actually be that heaven is for real. Heaven is for real. I'm sorry, yes. yes. I'm cursing heaven is for real. I cursed the wrong... I cursed the <laughs> sorry, wrong... Yeah. Pivot! Pivot! Yes. <laughs> heaven is for real. It's by a little... Uh, yeah, so a, a, a kid dies and goes to heaven and comes back. Turns out the kid says he made it all up. And so, but we had already sensationalized this in Christian culture to me, this huge thing. See, this is proof. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. And it turns out the kid just kind of got pressured into saying stuff he'd heard in Sunday school. And it shows how... Um, how important actually reading scripture, trying to understand these things, but also doing it with uh, maybe apart from some of the conceptions that we've come to uh, make popular in our culture yeah. um, and, and, and maybe check ourselves before we just jump on and believe something because it sounds right, but really look into what is this going to be? What is God trying to convey? Yeah. What, what do the scriptures say about this? And like you said, reading it through um, a lens of what are they intending to mean here and not just the simplest understanding. So I'm going to curse. Yes, that, that was the right movie. Thank you. There's a lot of heaven, heaven movies. Is, yes. <laughs> Heaven's for real. 90 minutes in heaven. My daddy went to heaven. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I'm cursing the movie. I'm cursing generally all of them, but like yeah, especially just, heaven is for real. Generally the heaven movies. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna, I got to curse. The heaven genre. Yeah. I know they make people happy and cry, but I think that it, it actually does more harm than good when conceptualizing uh, the truth about yeah. the afterlife. So I, I got to curse those. So on to our guest, blesses and curses, resources, movies. And you uh, did, I don't, if you only want to bless something, don't want to curse anything, some of our, our guests do that as well. Can I curse first and bless last? Yeah, please. All right. So what I want to curse is almost all the worship, contemporary worship music I've heard. <laughs> I'm going to talk about music here. So um, I, I do a lot of analysis of worship songs, even songs I like that I've even played in worship band. That are beautiful songs, but you, you look at the, look at the lyrics, and they're vacuous. Mm. Or they speak about worshiping God, but they don't have any content to them. What does that actually mean? Mm. You know, and, and I think of all kinds of songs that I do like at a certain level, but if they are what shapes your theology and music tends to shape the theology of the Canadian yes. Church, mm. then you have a very weak theology. So I want to I want to bless the music of Bruce Coburn, Canadian singer songwriter mm. who has. Probably one of the most important people in my life. That he's now in his seventies. He's still performing. He's doing what would have been his fiftieth anniversary tour, which was canceled because of COVID. He's on the west coast right now, doing it fifty-one years. Started in uh, first album in nineteen seventy. Now he's won a lot of you know the equivalent of Grammys in Canada, the Juno Awards. He's won a lot of these awards. Um, I want to bless particularly his album called "Dancing in the Dragon's Jaws," mm-hmm. nineteen seventy-nine. Two songs I want to mention from their creation dream. You want a vision, and he got it from Tolkien and Lewis and George MacDonald, the, 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 the vision there, where, where Aslan sings the world into being. Well, he's got something like that in this song, and the music, he's a phenomenal guitarist, and the music is phenomenal in this song. You will listen to songs on this album, you say, I've never heard, there is no genre that is quite like that. Wow. He's that inventive, but he's a Christian. He kind of moved away from Christianity for a while, come right back now. Um, dead center again creation dream fantastic song about creation i use it to teach the creation narratives in the bible and a second song called hills of morning which is based on genesis 1 verses verse 3 where god said let there be light it's about light coming over the hills of morning of creation but he has he blends it with the vision of jesus because just beyond the range of normal sight some glittering joker was dancing at the dragon's joints that's the line i love from that song uh, anyway, I just I think this is an amazing um, album. Uh, they're, they're, I recommend a lot of his, his albums. They're phenomenal. Oh, so check them out. That's fantastic. Bruce Coburn spelled C-O-C-K-B-U-R-N. British okay. spelling, British pronunciation, Bruce Coburn. Uh, British. Canadian. 
he, he lives he lives in um i think los angeles now oh wow but, uh, but but i think he but he's from the ottawa area Oh, wow. That's per- that's a wonderful blast. Oh, well, yeah. thank you so much, uh, Dr. Middleton, for joining us. And, you know, to any of our listeners, we have a mix of Christian and non-Christian listeners. You know, I hope for Christians that this was helpful in giving you an inspiring vision of your faith maybe you hadn't considered before. And for non-Christians, I hope this is a really great picture for you to understand better what it is that Christianity is and is teaching. And what our hope is in. And what our hope is in. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, if you, we actually did another episode on hell or the lack thereof, and if it exists uh, with a scholar by the name of Preston Sprinkle. If you want to continue your study of the afterlife and explore both heaven and hell, please check out that episode. It's oh, really that's fun. a nice plug. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So, um, Dr. Middleton, if people, if you uh, people wanting in touch with you and you want them to get in touch with you, where uh, should they go? Where reach out? Or is there and is there anything yeah. you want to promote that you're doing right now as well? Uh, the simplest way to get in touch with me is I've got a, a blog website. I don't do much blogging right now. I'm kind of busy doing other things, but it's just jrichardmiddleton.com. If you go there, there's a contact form. You can email me and I'll email you directly back. Awesome. Um, uh, I'm working right now on a book on First Samuel, on the power dynamics between Samuel and Saul, and how Samuel as a prophet misrepresents God and deconstructs Saul. So Saul is a guilty person, but he's been, not been well mentored by the one with power. Looking at that, looking at the ethics of power and how we in the church abuse power through the lens of First Samuel. Wow. It's, called, it's going to be called Portrait of a Disgruntled Prophet. Wow. So make sure to grab a copy of that when it comes out. Uh, that's fantastic. And definitely check out his website. There is a, a lot of stuff that I'm sure that our listeners will really enjoy. And if you enjoy this conversation, uh, I have no doubt yeah. you'll find more inspiring, mind-sparking things. So thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. This is an an amazing subject and so great to cover. I love your perspective. I know this will open a lot of minds uh, to new ways of seeing this. And uh, if you would like to follow uh, us, you can go to theoverthinkersjournal.com or join our private Facebook group, The Overthinkers. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can go to nathanclarkson.me or search my name, Nathan Clarkson, on any of the socials. You can find me on josephholmstudios.com or any of the socials as well. You can also find my work discussing movies and faith at religionplugged.com. And yes, please, we'd love to hear. If you have some reason that you think we're completely wrong about this, please send us a, your, all your love mail or hate mail, whatever you choose. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining. And remember, if it's worth thinking about, it's worth overthinking about.